I've been um, thinking recently about uh, friendship, the importance of uh, friendship, of having friends you can share your life with, and the way that friendship works, um, the depth to which a friendship can go, and the ordinariness of friendship. Last year, I reconnected with a friend with whom I'd lost touch. Um, he was a good friend. We, um, when we first came to London to work, we shared a flat together. But our lives sort of went in, in different directions, and we, we just got busy, had different priorities, um, and I hadn't seen him for 20 years. Um, but I wanted to reconnect, so I reached out, um, and he was delighted that I got back in touch. Um, and we've met up now uh, a few times, which has been wonderful. Um, and the remarkable thing is that whilst so much has happened in our respective lives in those intervening years, our friendship is still the same. Um, it's almost as if we'd never lost touch. Um, and he is the same. Uh, as I remember him, his mannerisms, his way of speaking, his um, jokes. Um, in fact, I found that I could correctly anticipate how he would respond to something um, because of my memories of our friendship and sharing that flat together. And, and friendship really is an extraordinary thing. How a, a life shared creates a, a bond that, that lasts across the years. And perhaps this shouldn't be surprising since we are made in the image of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A God in which relationship is the very essence of God's being. As the Bible tells us, it is not good that the man should be alone. Friendship is extraordinarily ordinary. It's the bread and butter, the warp and weft of life. And our Bible reading this morning from the Gospel of John introduces us to Philip and his friend Nathaniel. And let's unpack what's going on in this passage. But let's pray to start with. Lord Jesus, come now by your Holy Spirit. Lord, would you um, enliven the words I've written that I will speak. Lord, may you carry your word to us this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. So let's recap the story and, and put it in context. So in, in the passage just before our reading, um, we're told that, that, John, that Andrew and an unnamed disciple were with John the Baptist down at the River Jordan at Bethany. Um, but when John prophetically declares that Jesus is the Lamb of God, Andrew and this unnamed disciple decide to follow uh, Jesus. Then Andrew rushes off to find his brother Peter and tell him that they've, they've found Jesus and encourages Peter to join them. The next day, Jesus decides to, to leave the river uh, and, and go to the hill country of Galilee, where, as our Bible reading tells us, he finds Philip. And Philip then invites um, his friend Nathaniel. Philip was from the town of Bethsaida, the same town from which Andrew and Peter came. So it's probably through Andrew and Peter that Jesus was able to meet Philip and how they, how they connected. Philip rushes off 
to, to find Nathanael. And he tells him that he had found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. It's a very strange message. And Nathanael seems rather dismissive when he hears mention of Nazareth. He says, Nazareth, can anything uh, good come from there? Nathanael came from Cana of the wedding miracle, which was just north of um, Nazareth, a neighboring town. And so maybe there was some friendly rivalry going on there. Maybe Nazareth was known for not taking its faith particularly seriously or maybe lacks morals. We don't really know. But perhaps it was just neighborly rivalry. Think of Manchester and Liverpool or uh, Yorkshire and Lancashire or closer to home, Arsenal and Spurs. Um, And so for Nathaniel, if anything significant was going to happen, it wasn't going to happen in Nazareth. It was more likely to happen in one of the big Roman cities or towns nearby, such as Tiberias or, or Sepphoris. And, and such human sort of blindness, of sort of closing ourselves down, uh, is well described in a, a poem by Francis Thompson called In No Strange Land. And he writes this. He writes, O world invisible, we view thee. O world intangible, we touch thee. O world unknowable, we know thee. Inapprehensible, we clutch thee. Not where the wheeling systems darken and our benumbed conceiving soars, the drift of pinions would we hearken, beats at our own clay-shuttered doors. The angels keep their ancient places, turn but a stone and start a wing. Tis ye, tis your estranged faces, that miss the many splendid thing. And it struck me how often we miss that many splendid thing, the display of God's glory in the ordinariness of life. Now, the fact is that Nathaniel took his faith very seriously. As it seemed, so did Philip. Else why would Philip say that he had found the one Moses wrote about in the law? It implies that both Philip and Nathaniel had been searching the scriptures, had understood that the scriptures were prophesying the coming of a saviour, of a Messiah, and that they were looking for this Messiah. Now, tradition has it that Nathaniel um, was a wealthy and a learned man, uh, and scholars think he's probably the same individual uh, who's called Bartholomew in the other three Gospels. Nathaniel being his first name, which means given of God, and Bartholomew being his, his surname. But Philip's statement suggests that Nathaniel had been studying the scriptures, what we now know as the, the Old Testament. And he'd understood from the law and the prophets that God's plan was to send a Messiah to Israel, a rescuer to restore a righteous and a noble king to the throne. But as we've seen, Nathaniel is somewhat sceptical that this saviour could come from a place like Nazareth. He refuses to see glory or greatness in anything familiar or close to home. But Philip, bless him, ignores the jibe and just says, come and see. Which is exactly what Jesus had said to Andrew. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the good news that Jesus, God with us, Emmanuel, is God with us, can be understood intellectually, but it can only be fully understood as we experience it. We have to see and hear it for ourselves, the proof of the pudding and all that. Now, Nathaniel's scepticism was probably based on feeling and prejudice, as on his study of the scriptures. And, and so John here, sort of the, the writer of the gospel, makes Nathaniel the sort of the spokesperson for all of us who struggle to see and hear God. But the lovely thing is that, that Jesus is perhaps better known for rebuking and criticizing, particularly the, the Pharisees and the uh, teachers of the law, rather than saying nice things about people. But here he applauds Nathaniel. He says, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nice compliment. And Jesus is probably referring to Psalm 32, which says, blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. Nathaniel would have known Psalm 32. No doubt he would have taken the compliment. But I think Jesus um, was also contrasting Nathaniel with Jacob, that deceitful sibling who, as recorded in the book of Genesis, stole his bro brother's birthright and is consistently depicted as lacking trust in God, using his own wits to get what he wants. But Jacob's name was changed to, by God to Israel. He was one of the founding fathers of the nation. And interestingly, in John chapter 1, the beginning of the, the, the chapter, John the Baptist declares that he came baptizing with water that Jesus might be revealed in Israel. There seems to be a connection being made here. It seems that the that John, the writer of this gospel, is saying that there is a new creation going on. Just as, as Graham prayed uh, that prayer earlier um, in, in the, um, after the worship time, that in Christ you make all things new, transform the poverty of our nature by the riches of your grace. And so John here seems to be saying there's a new thing going on. There is a new Israel being birthed in which guile and deceit have no place. I think we get a hint of this in the opening words of the gospel, those famous words, in the beginning was the word. And also we see it in this particular part of the chapter where there is a repetition of the phrase next day. So if we remember the Genesis account of creation taking place over seven days, we can note here that the gospel writer has John the Baptist testifying to Jesus on the first day. On the second day, he declares Jesus to be the Lamb of God. On the third day, Andrew and his unnamed friend follow Jesus. On the fourth day, Philip and Nathaniel follow Jesus. And then, three days later, so on the seventh day, Jesus reveals his glory through the miracle of the changing of the water into wine at the wedding of Cana. 
the writer seems to be setting up a clear parallel between the creation account in Genesis and what God is now doing through Jesus Christ. John is saying, look, see, God is doing a new thing. And as the Apostle Paul writes later in his letter to the Corinthian church, he says, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. Anyway, back to Nathaniel. Jesus could see that Nathaniel was one of the good guys. But I think Jesus is declaring him, is, is not describing who he is at that time, but who he will become through following Jesus. Now, Nathaniel is, unsurprisingly, rather surprised by this, since this was the first time that they had met. How do you know me? He asks. And Jesus replies, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. What does that mean? What's going on there? Well, fig trees are an important symbol in the story of Israel. The Old Testament prophet Micah observes that the, the lack of figs, along with the image of unfruitful vines, is a symbol of Israel's unfaithfulness and its judgment by God. Micah says this, Woe is me, for I have become like one who after the summer fruit has been gathered, after the vintage has been gleaned, finds no cluster to eat. There is no first ripe fig for which I hunger. The faithful have disappeared from the land, and there is no one left who is upright. Not so good. But on the other hand, a fruitful tree signifies Israel's love for God and the hope that on the last day God will renew our relationship with him when the Messiah comes. And so the prophet Zechariah says, on that day, the last day, says the Lord of hosts, you shall invite each other to come under your vine and your fig tree. Nathaniel was sitting under a fig tree. Nathaniel was being blessed by God. Sitting under a fig tree is also sort of picture language to describe studying or reading. Israel's a hot country. Um, fig trees provided shade. It was a good place to sit in the cool if you wanted to read and relax. Nathaniel, as I said, was someone who took his faith seriously, studied God's word, but his ability to actually see what God was doing was limited by his prejudices. For now there in front of him was God's word in flesh, Jesus of Nazareth. As we've just sung over the Christmas period in, in the carol, O come all ye faithful, Jesus is word of the Father now in flesh appearing. But it just didn't make sense to Nathaniel. He knew the words of scripture, but how on earth could this local guy, son of Joseph, be the Messiah, the one about whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. And so Jesus just breaks through this intellectual block that Nathaniel has by saying to Nathaniel that he saw him under the fig tree before Philip called. Jesus has this supernatural 
knowledge, this insight into what Nathaniel was doing and where he was that only God could have known. And it strikes a responsive chord in Nathaniel immediately because it was true. And how could Jesus have known that about him? They'd never met before. He'd never seen him. And so it becomes, for Nathaniel, a sign of Jesus' supernatural knowledge. And it opens him up to a new way of seeing, a seeing enlivened and empowered by the Spirit of God. And so Nathaniel's response, his immediate response, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is boldly to announce, without question, that Jesus is the Son of God, the King of Israel. Much in the same way that later in John's Gospel, the Samaritan woman at the well tells her neighbours, come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. He can't be the Messiah, can he? Now these two descriptions, these two titles that Nathaniel uses, the Son of God and the King of Israel, are two ways of saying the same thing, that Jesus is the Messiah prophesied in the Scriptures. The Gospel of John is, um, in summary, the story of the crowning of Jesus through his death and resurrection, the establishment of his kingdom and rule, not just over Israel, but the whole of creation. And so Nathaniel saying that Jesus is the Son of God, meaning the King of Israel, is in effect prophesying the end of the story right at the beginning. God's son, Jesus the Word, who was with God in the beginning, as we learn from the opening words of the Gospel, is King of Israel. Now Nathaniel believed because he was impressed with Jesus' supernatural knowledge about him. But Jesus then goes on to promise that he will see even greater things than that word of knowledge, that prophecy, that insight into his life. He will apparently see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now this promised vision strikes a chord. It's familiar, isn't it? Because it reminds us of the dream that Jacob, again, Israel, had in Genesis at Bethel, where he saw this dream of angels climbing a staircase to heaven, ascending and descending. But here, in place of Jacob, called Israel, is the Son of Man, Jesus himself. And Jesus is saying that the disciples will share in this vision too. And John, in describing the events surrounding the calling of these five disciples, Andrew, the unnamed disciple, Philip, Nathaniel, says that Jesus is is, is basically this whole passage is leading up to this proclamation, this announcement that Jesus is the Son of God, the King of Israel. And the various titles that are applied to Jesus, Messiah, Christ, Lamb of God, Son of God, King of Israel, find their answer, sort of come together in the phrase that Jesus himself used, which is, his his self-description, where he described himself as the Son of Man. And in all the Gospels, this is Jesus' most characteristic self-description. 
In the Gospel of Mark, at his trial, Jesus prophesies that you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven, referencing the heavenly figure in Daniel chapter 7 that, that Graham spoke about before Christmas. But the difference is that this is not a heavenly figure. Jesus is here in the flesh. The point John is making is that Nathaniel and the other disciples will see the truth. Not in the, the far-off distance in the, in the heavens, not in the messianic doctrines of the rabbis, but right now, before their very eyes, in the person and ministry of Jesus himself. Nathaniel is promised a vision that will overcome his disdain for the familiar and the commonplace. He will learn what it means that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Or as the message version of the Bible puts it, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Now we're not told that the disciples ever saw such a vision of angels ascending and descending. So it seems that John, the writer of the gospel, is telling us that this vision of the glory of God was seen in the entirety of Jesus' ministry which, of course, continues in the next passage with his first miracle, the changing of the water into wine at the wedding of Cana. And for us, it means that we need to be people like Nathaniel, who search the scriptures. Although, of course, we now have the New Testament as well as the Old Testament to point us to Jesus. But we also need to be alert to finding God in the ordinary in the regular things of life, in the flesh and blood of the neighbourhood. If the Son of Man, Jesus, is now, through his death and resurrection, king over all creation, over the heavens and the earth, then all things can be used to open our hearts and minds to him. If Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and we only come to the Father through him, then we need to avail ourselves of every opportunity to find and get to know Jesus, to see him at work in his world. Whether that comes from reading the Bible or prayer, or experiencing the supernatural through a word of knowledge or a healing, or through the witness of the wonder of creation, or through the everyday ordinariness of the kindness of a neighbour, the gift of a smile, a kind word, a meal cooked, or an errand run. The ministry of Jesus continues today through his church, through you and me. You and I are called to be imitators of Christ, to demonstrate his welcome to all, particularly those whom society has rejected or left behind, to show love and kindness to everyone, even those we regard as enemies. We're to be meek, to be merciful, pure in heart, makers of peace and thirsty for righteousness. We're to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. In everything, we are to do to others as we would have them do to us. So, brothers and sisters, at the beginning of this new year, in this season of epiphany, of revelation, let's take heed of Nathaniel. Let's commit 
to reading and studying and searching the scriptures. Let's be open to the unexpected and meeting God through the gifts of the Spirit. But also let's not neglect to have our eyes open to seeing Jesus at work in the ordinariness of life. And so, in conclusion, let me read you a poem by the Anglican poet Malcolm Geit called Heaven in Ordinary. The poem, appropriately for the season, begins with the ordinariness of the Christmas story. A baby born in a manger. And the poem highlights for a moment the, the, how the glassy surface of the world, the dusty and the familiar, can be, can be cleared and cleansed by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so something shines through, and we have a brief anticipation of what the Apostle Paul uh, says is, is the great hope for us all, that though we see now through a glass darkly, one day we shall know as we are known. One day we shall see face to face, and the face that we see shall be the face of love. Heaven in Ordinary by Malcolm Guite. Because high heaven made itself so low that I might glimpse it through a stable door, or hear it bless me through a hammer blow and call me through the voices of the poor, unbidden now, its hidden light breaks through amidst the clutter of the everyday. Illuminating things I thought I knew, whose dark glass brightens even as I pray. Then this world's walls no longer stay my eyes. A veil is lifted likewise from my heart. The moment holds me in its strange surprise. The gates of paradise are drawn apart. I see his tree with blossom on its bough, and nothing can be ordinary now. Amen. <laughs>